Can I just tell you something? It's hard to start a new church. The Apostle Paul understood that because he had started the church at Corinth. In fact, he had spent a year and a half of his life with these people. What happened? <laughs> he must have wondered, what happened? Let's open our Bibles together to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we pick up our text in verse 18. What happened goes back to the context of their lives. Corinth was not a university city, but the Greek influence was very strong there. After all, it was only 48 miles from the city of Athens. And the Greeks loved speculation. They loved logic and argumentation. Sort of sounds like your teenager, doesn't it? The Greek influenced pagans valued rhetoric and debate. And they had perhaps 50 different philosophies that they built their lives around, 50 different parties or groups that they divided themselves into. Each one of them had their own answers for the significant questions of life. Who am I? Why am I here? What happens after life? Rick Warren, you see, he wasn't around yet to write his book, The Purpose Driven Life. And so they didn't have the answers to those questions yet. <laughs> Exploring these questions, they developed sometimes very complex systems of thinking, of outlining the order of society and the relationships between people. Uh, now, understand that these people were not stupid because they were pagans and they were Greeks. In fact, many of them were brilliant thinkers but they were blinded by one fundamental flaw. And that was the flaw that they rejected the knowledge of God. That's what Romans chapter 1 is all about. The spirit and the values of this Greek pagan-oriented culture stuck with the Corinthian Christians after they had believed. Now, look. That's almost always true. Until some work of grace is done in our hearts by the Spirit of God changing our minds, our spirits, we are very much still connected with whatever we were saved out of. Like their pagan neighbors, these Corinthian Christian converts were prone to pick a favorite preacher or teacher and then divide themselves into factions based upon their choice. You see, that's what they had come out of these philosophers that they followed. <clears throat> and these people still had an ear for, for clever words, for sharp arguments of philosophy. And so, Paul warns them in verse 17 about mixing the wisdom of words, talking about human wisdom, mixing the wisdom of words with the revelation of God and the message of the cross he says, if you do that, it empties the gospel of its power. If you mix together the wisdom of man with the revelation of God in Christ, he says it voids, it neutralizes, it nullifies the gospel message. That is true if we mix the gospel today with positive thinking, or we mix it with the so-called health and wealth gospel that people like to hear. Or we mix the gospel message with the self-help principles. 
When we do that, it nullifies the gospel. It robs the gospel of its power. As in those days, still today, there are two opposing wisdoms. Or we might say, two opposing worldviews. Or two opposing ways of interpreting the world. There's God's way, and there's man's way. The Apostle warns here that one's faith must be based upon God's wisdom, not man's wisdom. God's wisdom and man's wisdom cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. And if you're following along in the outline, and I encourage you to do that, it always helps to take notes so that you can go back and reflect and remember. We've come now to the first blank to fill in. God's wisdom and man's wisdom are mutually exclusive. They don't mix. Why is this? Well, let me say in the first place, it's because of how the two wisdoms differ in their content. How they differ in their content. One reason they're mutually exclusive is this, that man is the center of man's wisdom. And who is the center of God's wisdom? Exactly, God is. Human wisdom represents any number of ideations or schemes of thinking that exalt human discovery and human rationalism over divine revelation. I'd like to leave that statement on the screen for just a moment so you can copy it down. Human wisdom represents any number of ideations or schemes of thinking that exalts human discovery or human rationalism over divine revelation. These are worldviews that define reality or define truth for their adherence. And I want to give you some modern-day examples of what I'm talking about. This is modern-day human wisdom. One example would be naturalism, or we might call it evolutionism. <clears throat> this way of thinking precludes anything supernatural. Reality for the naturalist is based upon chance and the survival of the fittest. Life has no ultimate meaning to a naturalist. The goal of one who is a naturalist is to bring everything together as globalism, as world government. It is the rule of the fittest. This is where Nazism comes from. This is where communism comes from. Inevitably, naturalism will lead to, to uh, despotism, to dictatorship, to the tyranny of minorities. There's a second modern-day example of human wisdom that is, is dominant. It's called materialism. This is a way of thinking. This is a way of perceiving reality. It precludes anything spiritual or supernatural. The only thing real is what is material. Ultimate meaning is found only in material things. Now, some materialists, frankly, are free market capitalists. And they believe very much like the man in Luke's gospel that Jesus talked about, whose only interest in life was to tear down his small barns and to build bigger barns. Because everything about life was, real, uh, was material to him. That was his reality. 
Now certainly we believe in a free economy. It provides opportunity for anyone who wishes to, to work hard. I'm not knocking that. But it's dangerous when we see that the only goal to a free market economy and to capitalism is to be prosperous and to accumulate things. That's a materialist. There are others who see themselves uh, in a different light. They are materialists who I would call socialists. They want a new world order that's based upon socialism. As somebody has defined socialism, it's where everybody shares equally in the misery. <laughs> socialism takes from the rich and it gives to the poor. It's, it's the, the old Robin Hood kind of a thing. <clears throat> it's the redistribution of wealth through taxes or whatever. Now certainly helping the poor is a compassionate thing and a godly thing to do, but not stealing from somebody else to do that. That's what socialism is all about. Again, socialism just sees the reality as material right now. It sees nothing beyond that. There's a third example of uh, human wisdom I want to point out, and that is mystical spiritualism. Very prominent today. Now, people who are in this camp believe in the spiritual, unlike the other two. They believe in the supernatural, but not in a personal, sovereign God. Reality for them is connecting to the spiritual through some sort of a mystical experience. Whether that spiritual be within oneself, or if it be in another dimension, it taps into the darkness. Life has meaning in self-realization. By becoming one's own God, getting in touch with the God who is within you. You've heard these kinds of phrases. Or getting in touch with the God however you define your God. The goal of a person who is a mystical spiritualist is to enter into a new age of human harmony. Or perhaps differently, to experience reincarnation into a higher plane of existence. Now there's one thing that all of these worldviews have in common. And there's some overlapping too. We acknowledge that. There's one thing they all have in common, and that is they contradict God's wisdom. James comments on these kinds of ways of thinking. He says, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. Now, God's wisdom, on the other hand, centers in the reality of a personal, sovereign, infinite God. This is God's wisdom now, in contrast. This personal, sovereign, infinite God entered the world as a man through the miracle of the Incarnation. He came as the Savior, the Christ. <clears throat> and this God suffered and died on the cross as a way of satisfying His own justice against our sinfulness. This God was raised from the dead as a sign of his victory over sin, over death and Satan. God's wisdom is his own self-disclosure that is found in the Bible. God's wisdom tells us who we are. It tells us why we are here. It tells us what the end of all things is. 
It begins in the book of Genesis. And then as the story unfolds through the 66 books of the Bible, you discover the answers to life's greatest questions. God's wisdom is his own revelation of the cross. <clears throat> you see, Christ crucified is the very apex of God's wisdom. Isn't this amazing? God exalts the greatest crime ever committed by humanity, the crucifixion of Christ, <clears throat> in order to achieve his most glorious work. And it was all for the benefit of mankind, the one who had done the crime. You see, man's wisdom is his own self-discovery, whether that be through his own reasoning or rationalism, through his experience or through his scientific exploration. Man's wisdom is his own autonomy from any superior being. Man's wisdom says, I am God. I am the captain of my fate. I am the master of my soul. <clears throat> God's wisdom says, I am God, the infinite, personal, sovereign God. That's why these two cannot coexist. You can't have two gods. Now, there's a second reason they can't coexist, and that's because of how the two wisdoms differ in worth. In worth. The spiritually lost person naturally evaluates God's wisdom by his own wisdom. That's all he's got. Thank you very much. Got it. Jimmy Crunch that ice. Good. The spiritually lost person naturally evaluates God's wisdom by his own wisdom. For example, Paul says the lost pagan judges God's wisdom in Christ as what? Foolishness. Foolishness. Literally, the word is moronic. Man looks at what God's wisdom is, the crucified Christ, and he says, that's utter nonsense. Because he seeks for wisdom that meets his definition of what is logical and reasonable. And, get this, which leaves intact his own sense of ego and superiority. That's what man is looking for. He says God's wisdom is for simpletons. It's for morons. God's wisdom is for halfwits. God's wisdom does not make sense. It's, it's just too uncomplicated. It's too easy. And so it writes off the wisdom of God. On the other hand, the lost Jew looks at God's wisdom, Christ crucified, <clears throat> and he sees stumbling block. Why is this? It's because the Jews expected the Christ to come and deliver them. The Christ is depicted in the Old Testament, in part, as the mighty deliverer who would come and rescue his people and establish his kingdom. A Christ who is crucified? You've got to be kidding. That is a huge stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews are looking for signs of his greatness, for proof of his messiahship. Now, the real problem with, with God's wisdom is that it assails human pride. It assails man's sense of ego, his sense of control over his own destiny. 
because we want to be God. That's the worth of God's wisdom as man looks at it. But on the other hand, God has something to say about human wisdom. God makes man's wisdom also foolish. Verse 20. In other words, God declares it foolish because He shows man's wisdom for what it is. It is part of the problem and certainly not the solution to man's condition. God condemns man's wisdom as ineffective in eliminating man's problems. He quotes from Isaiah 29, 14. He says, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Quoting from Isaiah. And then notice the number of questions that follow. Just bam, 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 one after the other. I hope you're following along with the Bible as I, I deal with this. He asked, first of all, where is the wise man? Now, Paul may have had in mind the Greek philosophers that we know, Plato, Aristotle, and so forth. Or he may have had in mind one of those philosophers, as one author said, who stood on every corner in Corinth and spouted his ideas. But Paul pokes at him. He goads him and says, where is the philosopher? He says, where is the scholar? Literally, where is the scribe? Perhaps thinking about a Jewish scribe who is an expert in the law. He says, where is he? He says, where is the philosopher of this age? Whether Jew or Gentile, where is that one who engages in this speculation, these intellectual arguments and debates while ignoring the wisdom of God? Where is he? What's his point here? Paul is showing what good have all these worldly-wise, well-intentioned people really accomplished? Isn't the human race still embroiled in the same problems it always has been? What's different about man? What's different about our world? What has changed for the good because of all of these people and all of these philosophies? And that's why he concludes with the rhetorical question, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And the rhetorical question is answered in the positive. Yes, He has. For God has allowed the fruit of man's wisdom to be evident, which is further decay, greater divisions, more wars, more injustice, continued racism and classism. All the fruits of sin are still present, and more so after all of man's intellectual debates and pursuits, all of his ideas. And so God declares man's wisdom to be utter nonsense. It is unable to make men better or the world safer. Man's wisdom does not deliver the oppressed. It does not create equality. It does not engender the common good. It does not stop wars or promote honest politicians or preserve moral virtue in a culture. If it does in any sense, it's only temporary and partial. Why is this? Because man's wisdom inevitably ignores reality. Because it does not include God. And God, the ultimate reality answers all of the questions. 
who is man? Why are we here? And in the condition we are? And where are we headed? God tells us very plainly. <clears throat> so you see, both camps, if I can put it that way, declare the worth of each other's wisdom to be foolish. These two cannot coexist. Now there's a third reason as to why these are incompatible, and that is because of how the two wisdoms differ in their outcome. I touched on this briefly. Look at the tragic outcome of man's wisdom. In the first place, it does not bring anyone into a transformational relationship with God. It leaves man disconnected from ultimate reality and with a life that is still in bondage to its own corruption. Secondly, it leaves, man's wisdom leaves its adherence in a state of perishing. Paul says in verse 18, but to those who are perishing, it's a present tense kind of thing. That is the reality of our world. Our world and the people in it are perishing, being ruined and destroyed. And man's wisdom is not helping anything. In neither an eternal nor a temporal sense does the world's wisdom result in good. Now, I'm not speaking of scientific achievements, of the discoveries of the world. I'm kind of glad Columbus discovered the world in the West. I'm not talking about the progress in medication or in agriculture or manufacturing or technology and so forth. We all benefit from those kinds of things. What I'm talking about, what I'm referring to are the philosophical underpinnings that form the world's way of thinking, its values, its goals, the worldviews of man, these things that are created by his own wisdom. These are tragic consequences of errors. Human wisdom is not, has not created a utopian society. It has not created an improved version of the human being. In fact, it's just the opposite. And so we might join Paul this morning in taunting the world just a little bit. Where are all these smart people, the elite of our society, the wise intellects in our universities who claim such superiority? Where are the Freuds and the Marxes and the Darwins and the Margaret Meads and the George Soruses and the, the, thank you, and the Carl Sagans and the Richard Dawkins? Where are they? Why haven't they produced a utopia? Isn't that what they've promised us? If we would but believe their ideas? Where are the ones who have claimed if we just spent more money on education, it would produce the best educational system in the world and smarter people able to compete in a global market. But the more money we spend on education, the more our educational standards go down. Where are they? Where are the Margaret Sangers? 
And she, by the way, is the atheist who founded Planned Parenthood. Where are the Margaret Sangers and the other promoters of sex education who advocated their cause and told us if we would but believe what they say, it would reduce teenage pregnancies, unhappiness in marriage, and STDs? Where are they? Have the billions that we have spent on eliminating poverty since the great society that many of us remember in our lifetime, where are they? Has it created a world without injustice and hunger and poverty? No. Has the shrill propaganda of the anti-military leftists in our culture produced a safer world? No. Here's my point. Human philosophies, based upon human wisdom, achieve no lasting good. Man's corrupt nature produces corrupt thinking, corrupt governments, corrupt systems, corrupt bureaucracies with corrupt results. That's the outcome of man's wisdom. And we are drowning in it. In contrast, look at the transforming outcome of God's wisdom. Paul says it is the power of God to save from ruin, from perishing, those who believe. Now, just think with me for a moment about the contrast between faith-based, Christ-centered programs and their secular counterparts. Let's think about substance abuse, for example. Compare the outcomes of, of these clinics and, and hospitals and programs where people go and they pay tens of thousands of dollars for three weeks or six weeks of treatment for their addictions. And they come out of those, and what do they do? Almost all of them inevitably go right back to their addictions. On the other hand, think about a program like Celebrate Recovery or Teen Challenge that exists on a percentage of 1% of the income of these other organizations, but whose philosophy includes the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changes the lives of people who get into those programs. They are different. And instead of the massive numbers returning to their addictions, the result is that 70 and 80% of them experience true deliverance from their addictions and substance abuse. Let's think about something else. Today our government creates bigger prisons to hold more prisoners and it pours increasing numbers of dollars into expensive rehabilitation programs for these prisoners. We educate them, we give them degrees and so forth. They get out of prison and what happens in the majority of the cases? They return to prison within a period of time because they repeat their crimes. But let a prison, like the one down in Alabama, for example, or Mississippi, rather, let in a program like Prison Fellowship that is based upon the wisdom of God. 
And it begins on a fraction of the budget of these other programs. It begins to teach men the truth, the wisdom of God. And what happens? They get converted. Their lives are transformed. They get a new heart, a new nature. They get some training, support. They get out of prison, and the vast majority of them stay out of prison. They bring blessing and benefit to, to our communities. Friends, what I'm trying to point out to you is the difference between human wisdom and man's wisdom in the outcomes. Whoever or wherever the gospel is received, it makes a difference. Now, human, human wisdom can offer ideas. It can form opinion, and it does. It can help diagnose, perhaps, the human condition. It can probe for solutions. It can advance imposing arguments about itself. Human wisdom can dominate the public attitudes, and it certainly does in our culture today. Human wisdom can use the force of law and of military and even terrorism to impose itself on others. But human wisdom has a fatal flaw. The fatal weakness of human wisdom is this. It cannot deal with the depravity of the human heart. It cannot change the nature of man. It can define it. It can pass laws against certain displays of that nature. It can seek to understand why a man acts the way he does through psychological or sociological research. But human wisdom cannot transform a single life. And that's why Paul says, the foolishness of God, the so-called foolishness of God, is wiser than man's wisdom. Because it changes lives. The weakness of God, the so-called weakness of God, is stronger than man's strength. Because it can lift a man out of his misery, out of his addictions, out of his poverty, and make him a new creature in Jesus Christ. And everyone, everyone listening to me right now, everyone in the world has a choice. <clears throat> that choice is which wisdom forms the foundation of their lives. What you and I need to do is look hard into our hearts and be sure that we're building our lives upon the wisdom of God and not the thinking of man. You will pick up books by the thousands in bookstores that espouse the thinking of man. You will hear talk programs. You will listen to, to television programs during the daytime that will say things that sound so good and attractive and pleasing to the ear. And all of those things fail. But the gospel of Jesus Christ cannot fail because it is the wisdom of God. Which wisdom are you building your life on? God's wisdom in Christ or the wisdom of the world? Jesus told a parable one time about a, a man who built his house. And we have a, sung a chorus about that. Many of us learned it in Sunday school. Maybe you'd sing it with me. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. 
The wise man built his house upon the rock, and the rains came tumbling down. You don't have to do this. The rains came down, and the floods came up. The rains came down, and the floods came up. The rains came down, and the floods came up. But the house on the rock stood firm. Ah, there's another verse. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. The foolish man built his house upon the sand. And the rains came tumbling. It always does. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up and the house on the sand fell flat. Exactly. And so we say, I'm going to change it just a little bit. So build your house on Christ crucified. So build your house on Christ crucified. So build your house on Christ crucified, and the blessings will come ling down. The blessings will come down as the prayers go up. The blessings will come down as the prayers go up. The blessings will come down as the prayers go up. So build your life on Him. Hey friend, on what are you building your life? It makes all the difference in this world and for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Oh, Spirit of God, I pray that you will search our hearts. And wherein any of us are still, like the Corinthians, incorporating the world's wisdom into our decisions, into the way that we think, in the way that we live, show it to us, Lord, so we, so we can get the sand out of our foundation and get the rock in place. God, help us to build wisely and incorporate our lives upon the rock that is found in the wisdom of God in Christ crucified. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The splendor of